Smartcast. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the the Athletic Obscure Podcast. Podcast is the home of the weird, strange, and unknown in sports. My name is Seth Mormon, and across the table from me, as always, is my good friend Richard Manning. How you doing, Seth? I'm doing great. Excellent. Hey, Rich, in our last episode, we spent some time talking about the 1956 Summer Olympics and the water polo match between Hungary and the Soviet Union, and we uh, are going to keep that Olympic theme going. Good. Right? It's uh, appropriate. Yeah, yeah. Winter Olympics are in full swing as we're recording. We're about a week into the Beijing Winter Games. Uh, Rich, you watch... Uh, any of the coverage? I must admit that I haven't watched a whole lot. Uh, just seen maybe some skeleton and uh, you know just a couple of the uh, tandem like downhill hill skiing stuff. But mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I've been I've been watching a little bit of curling, some downhill skiing, uh, some of the cross country stuff. Um, I watched most of the opening ceremonies. I th- I thought those were. Those I were saw pretty some great. of the uh, opening ceremonies. They had some good stuff. Um, yeah, that athlete from Tonga again was there, just like wearing a grass skirt without a shirt on, and it was super cold outside. I was like, dude, yeah. you got to watch yourself. Um, we've seen some doping issues already. Did you see the uniform fiasco? I with didn't. Them? So I didn't catch everything, but I guess some of the athletes were wearing the wrong style of uniform, so they ended up being disqualified from going to the final round. Okay. So there's a whole whole thing about that. Well, we we talked uh, about uh, lots of uh, uh, Olympic stuff in previous episodes, um, but the Winter Olympics are going to be our theme again today. And if you listened to last episode, which you should if you haven't listened to it. Uh, we did tease that we're going to be uh, headed uh, back to the Olympics. If you took a peek, our episode is entitled Beyond the Miracle, and we are going to be talking about what a lot of you guys know, the 1980 Olympic Hockey Tournament. But we're really gonna, not going to focus on the Miracle on Ice game. Yeah, I figure everybody knows that. It's common knowledge. It's not to belittle it because it is like one of the best, mo- one of the most important sporting events uh, in the 20th century. Uh, uh, agreed, agreed. But I wouldn't say that it's weird, strange, or unknown. No, not at all. Yeah. It's it's uh, it's weird and strange that they won, but it's definitely not unknown. Correct, correct, correct. Now, I'm sure most of you have seen the, the movie Miracle, or if you're as old as Rich and I, maybe you've lived uh, through that amazing game, and we've talked about that before on a couple of different podcasts, uh, that the that mighty Soviet hockey team and the U.S. team. Uh, Rich, we... <laughs> We've gone back and forth for like this whole week talking about research on this particular topic. Yeah. Because as we talk beyond the miracle, there is so much that is that leads up to the 1980 Olympic uh, um, hockey tournament and 
probably even more that comes out of that hockey tournament that maybe you're not completely familiar with. Yeah, and Seth, you're absolutely right. I mean, we could have easily broke this into like a four-part mini-series. Without a doubt. Just because there's such rich content out there and just some phenomenal stories yeah, it, um, it, it is just uh, amazing. We did a ton of research um, getting us uh, into this. Rich, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send it over to you first. Uh, get us going. All right. Thanks, Seth. So, uh, yeah, everyone knows the, te- the, team, the story. Team USA consisted of a, uh, a ragtag group of college amateurs that came together and beat the Soviets. Yeah, I mean, that in and of itself is just Im- almost impossible to wrap your head around. Yep. Uh, you know, it's worthy of being known as the Miracle Alliance because it was a miracle. Uh, but I think if we're going to tell the whole story, we may as well start at the very beginning to build some context. A- absolutely. I mean, and there's a ton of it. Oh, there's a lot. Yeah. So if you start looking at the things that occurred before the game, you'll see a whole bunch of uh, little choice nuggets that end up painting a more complete comprehensive picture of the events that happened on February 20th or February 22nd, 1980, when the game was. Uh, the big one was that this was not the first time the U.S. hockey team beat the Russians in the Olympics. Right, right, right. So we had to go back to 1960 in the Squaw Valley Olympics uh, in uh, Squaw Valley, California. The U.S. hockey team won the gold medal there with Canada winning silver and the USSR winning bronze. Along the way, the Americans beat the Soviets 3-2. to two. Uh, fun story about the Canadian team that won the silver. One of the players on there was Harry Sinden, who would later go on and uh, uh, be part of the uh, Boston Bruins uh, general managing general management oh, f- team. Fascinating. Yeah, I, I don't think all I, those great teams in the eighties. I don't think I know much about that nineteen sixty team. I think I remember seeing a little bits and pieces about it, but I don't really know a ton about it. That again, that could be a whole other, that could be a whole other thing. But podcast. I just picked that up. I'm like, hey, this that was really cool. But anyway, so. The Americans beat the Soviets in 1963-2. However, the Soviets weren't quite the juggernaut they'd, that they'd become, and really they weren't even the Soviets. Right, right. It, there wasn't that big, um, uh, you know, Cold War tension. I mean, the Cold War was going on. Don't get me wrong, you know. Um, but let, let's talk about some of the groundwork to understand how, how the Soviets became, well, quote unquote, the Soviets mm-hmm. in, in hockey. But we really got to go back to the end of World War II. We seem to always go back to World War II, Richard, because it's such a seminal moment in history, and Mm -hmm. so many things changed. Now, at this time, in the Soviet Union, there is no hockey program. Well, maybe I should say it this way. There is no Canadian-style ice hockey program. Um, In Russia, they played bandy. All right, Rich, you know about bandy, right? Yes, I do. All right, tell uh, me me a little bit. You know, it's just uh, like kind of like soccer. If ice hockey and soccer had a baby and was raised by a Pakistani uh, field hockey nanny. (laughs) Um, You know, so it was 11 on 11, so the same amount that you see in an NFL football uh, field, a huge sheet of ice. And uh, the only thing is that in the mid-20th century, there was really only four countries in the world that were playing it. Yeah, bandy is is a much more gentle sport uh, compared to to ice hockey that we mm-hmm. know of today. Uh, the goalies don't even have a stick. The goal is a whole lot bigger. Uh, in Russia, they they call it hockey with a ball. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a very different kind of uh, of a sport. So uh, World War Two is over, and back in the Soviet Union, under the direction of Vasily Stalin, that's Joseph Stalin's son. He is the the head of the Soviet sports program, and he 
desperately wanted to have a Canadian style ice hockey program because again, remember sports uh, are connected to politics in many ways. And really it's just, it's fascinating that you have the Stalin connection here because you know, that really points back to the glory of Stalin's regime because that's his son and, you yep. know, and the glory of uh, the Soviet Union. So, right. And, and, uh, and, and winning on, uh, on an athletic uh, field or rink or whatever is akin to um, a, a, a political win. Yeah, as well. And we talked a lot about that in the last episode. So let's go back. 1946, Anatoly Tarasov is named the first head coach and the director of the Soviet hockey program. So Vasily Stalin finds Anatoly Tarasov, and he's known as the father of Soviet hockey. One of the things he wanted to do is he he desperately wanted to get film on the NHL and uh, the Canadians playing hockey. But because he was in the Soviet Union behind the Iron Curtain, he just couldn't get any film, which ends up turning out to be a really, really good thing for hockey. All right. Yeah. And and basically, Tarasov ate, breathed, slept, and dreamt about hockey. He obviously knew the concept of hockey, the Canadian-style hockey, and he was really um, inspired by a lot of different things, ballet um, and, uh, and dance and choreography, were a big part of how he developed the the Soviet style. But he also really leaned into some other disciplines, uh, juggling, jump rope, gymnastics, tumbling, weightlifting, and chess. So it's uh, cross-training, and the chess makes a whole lot of sense because, you know, it's a cerebral game. And hockey, I don't think, gets enough credit for being as cerebral as it really is true 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 and i think he would take it even a step further than anybody was even dreaming talking about the 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 um how you think about playing hockey the whole hockey iq thing that absolutely talk about yeah. these days yeah off the charts yeah he became the coach of the central sports club of the army in moscow maybe you've seen this as cska yep. uh in in latin letters um it's basically the soviet red army club hockey team yeah. Um, all the players uh, were signed to a 25-year contract with the Army. Uh, they basically lived in, in barracks for most of the year. Uh, and uh, Tarasov was just a, a, a genius. He would get up early. He dreamed about plays. One of the things uh, he did is he actually really loved his players unconditionally. He spent time with them on the ice. He developed relationships with them. He was father. He was uncle. He was brother. He was teammate he was coach there's all these amazing things some of the things that were fascinating as i as i looked into his life he was a watchmaker um uh-huh. before world war ii and into the war uh, and he really ends up constructing soviet hockey like a, a watch all of the parts moving together they all move kind of in concert and in harmony with one another uh, they said that Tarasov thought in diagonals not in parallels and kind of before this, hockey was much more of a parallel yep. and angular sport. They all stood, they all skated in their lanes, essentially. Yeah, and he thought about it in 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 arcs and in uh, in all sorts of of different ways. And he was focused on where the puck was going, not necessarily where it was. Right. And we take that for granted now when we watch hockey. Uh, that that's kind of how how it was, but Tarasov uh, Tarasov's fingerprints are on the NHL very very strongly. Oh, right absolutely! Now. I mean, you see playmakers today, like I mean, 
you know, from Gretzky, obviously, when we were growing up to people now like uh, Connor McDavid, uh, right. how their vision and their ability to pass the puck where it's uh, where players are not right there, but where they're going to be. That's the whole key. Exactly. Yeah. And and kind of Toronto's uh, philosophy was for the players without the puck to determine the play, not the player with the puck. Mm-hmm. And so his idea was that um, one is depending on four instead of four people depending on one. Yeah. And that's a complete flip of the script. Oh, yeah. Well, you see that with Ovechkin today, right? On the If you watch him on the power play, he always manages to find a way to get open. And that's because of that whole philosophy that Tarasov threw in there. Yeah, it, it was said that the hockey that he developed was called unshackled hockey, or as one person put it, hockey that has wings to fly. I also read that it was like jazz on the ice. Yeah, absolutely. It yeah. was. It was. It was completely uh, a different sport. So it's actually that's why it was a good thing that Tarasov couldn't get his hands on some of the film to be able to copy anything. He was able to develop things uh, on his own. Uh, something else you really need to understand about uh, hockey in the Soviet union um they didn't really have rinks that that you could make ice mm-hmm. like today we could uh, you know, we can go just about anywhere here in yeah. southern california where it's like going to be 80 degrees today you can go anywhere and find ice yeah i drive i'll when I'm, i go on my way home i'll drive by one of the ducks ice arenas that they have yeah and and just about anywhere we're talking about uh, over in paramount where the zambonis are made um yep. you know all of that can, can happen but back in the soviet union they could only play ice hockey when the temperatures were below freezing and they could have a rink so Tarasov trained more than half of the year with no ice. And so that included hockey with a ball, not not the bandy not style, bandy. but but more of a rink style mm-hmm. with the ball. They played in dirt fields. They did cross training with running and soccer and lots of, of lifting weights and, and jumping rope and gymnastics. Um, Richard, I don't know if you've seen this. Uh, this happens a lot when you're watching an NHL game. They show like the footage of the of the players playing like soccer or doing like... Oh yeah, they're like, doing hacky sack hacky or sack and all yeah. that kind of stuff. That actually has its roots back in what Tarasov would do uh, with doing all these things uh, outside of uh, of ice hockey to get things going. Some of the things they did, they worked on uh, when you would when you would fall on the ice, how to roll and pop back up. So that yep. was their tumbling and gymnastics. Um, it was much more of a of a of a comprehensive uh, style of of play. Now, between 1963 and 72, the Soviets win every major international tournament. Um, they have nine world championships, three Olympics. This is not the 60 Olympics. We kind of talked about that already. Right. So this is a little bit beyond that. And between 46 and 63 under Tarasov, they basically recreate the sport of hockey. They turn into the dominant force of hockey in the world. But they hadn't been really challenged because they never really got to play what they considered the best in the world. They right. was, was the Canadians. Uh, and cause for the most part, the Canadians, the best players weren't in these international competitions yep. or in the Olympics. Cause they were always playing in the NHL. Um, so they were afraid of the Canadians, but the government, the Soviet government was afraid of them too. They kind of, the, the team wanted to play against them. The government didn't really want them to play because if you remember in the last episode, Cold War is fought in the arena of public opinion and in the press and the Soviet loss to Canada would be more than a loss on the rink. 
So the government was really, really hesitant to have them play. Um, you know, winning a hockey game was just as much political as it was athletic at that particular time. Um, let's fast forward just a little bit um, leading up to the 72 winter games in Sapporo. Yeah. Um, the, the Soviet government comes to Tarasov. Uh, and they ask him basically to orchestrate a tie with the Czechoslovakian team. Um, Czechoslovakia is a Soviet state, yep. friends and allies with the Soviet Union. And friends in quotation Correct. marks because in 1968 is the year of the, uh, the Prague Spring. Right, exactly. So, so allies, fr- yeah, friends in quotes. Yeah. Uh, Tarasov would had, have none of it. He's like, no, we're, we're going to play our best. We're going to win. Uh, and so he refused t- to do that. And the government then sends him into retirement. He actually doesn't even go with a team to Sapporo in 72. Um, and uh, it, it's really kind of a sad story because the, the architect, the, the, the father of Soviet hockey now is ousted for political reasons. Yeah. And, you know, that's just, and that's really kind of nails what the Soviets were about then too. It's like, if you did not do what the government said, um, they would make sure that you were punished or at the very least, they would hang that threat of punishment over you. Absolutely. And we'll get to that that later on in the episode. Yeah, can you pick up the story so, yeah. from here, Rich. You so the Soviets, like you said, Seth, were already dominating, already dominating the Olympics at that time. But it was assumed that even though they were pros, they weren't real pros like you'd see in the NHL. Because, you know, they weren't playing like the, and the top uh, players that were in the National Hockey League. Uh, you know, your superstars, and these were considered the best players. The NHL was considered the best league, etc. By 72, the Soviets, though, were bored with destroying uh, the amateur teams, so quote-unquote, and they were ready to play against the Canadian pros. Canada agreed, thinking that it would result in the cakewalk. It would not. No, 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 it was so not, not at all. Game one, the Soviets kicked the poutine out of Canada 7-3. to three. So this is called, this is the Summit Series, right? Summit Series, okay. 1972. And honestly, there should probably be an old, uh, another podcast episode about this whole thing down the road. Essentially, uh, they they won three of the first five games in this eight-game series with one tie. Canada barely came back to win the series uh, Paul Henderson scored a famous goal in the last minute of game eight. It's, you know, ask any Canadian and uh, they will tell you all about it. Um, you know, it was essentially like their miracle on ice. Right, exactly. Um, but uh, lesson learned after that series. The Soviet weren't just the best amateur team. They were the best team, period. Yeah, yeah. They blew everyone away because of their style of play, which, like you said, focused on constant motion around the ice, passing puck possession. Texas that you'll see in the, today's NHL, but it was really something completely novel back in the 70s. Um, along the way, they gained a reputation for being a subtly dirty team because of their stick work. Well, yeah, and one of the things... Um you know, uh, 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 about um, the Soviet style. It's not a dump and chase uh, style of hockey. It's puck possession. Puck possession. So you would have the Soviets being able to hold on to the puck for 30, 40, yeah. 50, 60 seconds at a time, which in, in this time, and even still today, you'll see some teams in the NHL play that dump and, and chase. Yeah, um, the ones that uh, have weak offenses, but you see a team like the uh, Colorado Avalanche, 
uh, you know, or the Florida Panthers this season where they will hold on to the puck for a long time to the point where you can almost start whistling sweet Georgia Brown because <laughs> right, right, they're just right. teasing the other team. Right. Uh, so, yeah, so the Soviets keep proving their dominance time and again. The Soviets and the Canadians hold a uh, sequel to the Summit Series in 1974. The Soviets kicked Canada's butt, yeah. but in Canada's defense, the country only used players from the NHL's rival league, the World Hockey Association. So it's WHA players. These, WHA aren't, the, these players. aren't the NHL. And, and, and they're studs in the WHA. Absolutely. But there are way better players that are still playing the NHL. Yeah. In 1976, the Soviets and the NHL agreed to play an annual midseason exhibition tournament pitting Soviet club teams from teams in the NHL. So think about this for a second. You're right in the middle of an NHL season, and all of a sudden the Soviets club teams come to town and you're going to take a break from the regular season for about a week and you're going to play these Soviet teams and yeah. then resume the regular season afterward. Well, I guess like um, like uh, club soccer in Europe does this, yeah. you know, because they'll have the international breaks where they mm-hmm. have to, you know, but part of that is is the is the is is how it works to qualify for World Cup and, yep. and all those kind of things. But but for hockey this was di- totally different. This totally different and it was really weird. Um, it really felt like kind of a political statement instead of just a uh, friendly match. Um, yeah, so, and of course, the Soviet club teams, when they came over here in the late 70s, they had some help because they tended to be stuffed with the best players f- pulled from other Soviet teams when these games happened. So not necessarily the the players who are on those club teams normally. They would find the best of the best in all of them and kind of put them all together. So, send them. yeah, they wouldn't necessarily put the best of the best but they would stuff like you know a couple like stud teams if it was like you know like you know i can't even remember some of the teams like the soviet wings i think yeah. is one of the teams so they would say oh let's go ahead and put a couple of guys on you know riga dynamo or whatever right. uh that's that are really on the national team and just put them in there yeah. uh so well let me let me let me interject here and and, and let's talk about 77 okay um 1977, the Soviets lost the world championships in Austria. Uh, and in fact, they came in third behind mm-hmm. Czechoslovakia and Sweden. And and that was uh, another uh, opportunity for the government to make a coaching change. So remember, they had Tarasov, yep. they had a different coach. And now um, after this, they uh, have the new coach, Viktor Tikhanov. Now that name might Ring a bell to you because Victor Tikhanov is going to be the the coach um, starting here in '77 and all the way into the 1990s. And we'll get into a lot more about Tikhanov later. All right, yeah, Rich. we'll also get a little bit more of that uh, team, uh, the Czechoslovakian team that uh, played in '77 a little bit later. Too. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, all right, back so to the you. Ga- yeah, so these games happened prior to Lake Placid every year except 1977. And it wasn't because of the World Championships. It was just because the Soviets took on, again, teams for the World Hockey Association. Uh, whatever league they played, it didn't matter, though. The Sir- Soviets took the series every year. Yep. They also This also included when the NHL fought fire with fire. So in 1979, the NHL hosted the, the uh, Challenge Cup in Madison Square Garden in lieu of the All-Star Game. And this uh, Challenge Cup put the Soviet national team against a team of NHL All-Stars in a best-of-three-game series. Now, the NHL roster was stacked, and they had 20 guys that would wind up in the Hall of Fame. So we're talking people like Bobby Clark, Guy Lafleur, Brian Trottier, Larry Robinson, Ken Dryden. Yeah, big names, big names. Huge, huge. I mean, just star-studded. 
the Soviets still beat them two games to one, which included a 6 nothing shutout in the final game. That's fascinating, fascinating. And, of course, it happens at Madison Square Garden, which seems to be the nexus of all sporting events. Right? We've talked about yeah. that in a lot of different things. So the one, you know, I'm not going to break down all the, all the games, but I will mention one. Uh, the most infamous game out of this whole series in the 70s came out in 76, which was a game against the Philadelphia Flyers, you know, the Broad Street Bullies. Yep, yep. Well, needless to say, they did Broad Street Bullies things to the Red <laughs> Army, uh, which caused the Red Army coach to pull his team off the ice in protest at one point. Wow. They only came back uh, because I think they, the official said, hey, you're going to forfeit your money if you uh, – if you don't finish the game. So if you ask a Canadian over 50 about this game, they'll probably bring up the legendary Hockey Night in Canada announcer Bob Cole, Bob Cole and his famous call about the game because he repeatedly said, they're going home, they're going home. <laughs> it was just like so nationalistic pride. Yeah, uh, yeah, It wasn't just because, oh, yeah, we're beating the Russians. No, we're kicking the Russians' butt, and they don't like it. So by the time Lake Placid rolls around, you have a full context here. The Soviet hockey team was hated by Americans, well, because they're the Soviets. Yeah. And and that goes off into a whole different tangent because the 72 basketball uh, game in the Olympics where the yeah. Russians. If that's you don't, a whole if you don't know about that, that's the Olympics in, in 72 in Munich with the whole clock fiasco and, a, yeah. and referees and all. There was a, it was a mess. Yeah. So North American hockey. So the Americans hate this. The Soviets. North American hockey fans hated them for many more reasons, though. You know, uh, so they were very good, but they also stuffed their rosters with better players. They played dirty, and they didn't like it when teams played dirty against them. So they were the enemy, and not just because of the CCCP on their sweaters. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, well, let's get into a little bit about the Miracle on Ice game. Not not a ton, but yeah. give us just a little so, bit. So, I mean, we all know the basics of the game. I mean, the Americans beat the Soviets 4-3. Mike Rizzioni scored the game-winning goal. U.S. goaltender uh, Jim Craig stood on his head. Yeah. Uh, Victor Tikhanov um, inexplicably pulled Vladislav Tretiak, who was the best goalie in the world. Might be one of the best goalies ever. Yes, Absolutely. Um, he pulled him after the first period. Now, granted, it was because Trechiak gave up a bad last-second goal at the end of the first period, but it was still absurd. Yeah, it was a, it was a ridiculous yeah. move. And again, the movie Miracle does such a great job of covering the game and really makes a big deal about Trechiak. Yep. That was the one thing going into that movie. I'm like, they need to do... Make a big deal, and they did, and they really nailed it. Because if you want to know why the Americans won this game, there's your answer. Yeah, I still don't think if Trechiak is pulled, the U.S. pulls this off. It was a mental thing, you know. It's kind of like in baseball when you got a pitcher who's just yep. dealing, and you just can't seem to solve them, and then they make a pitching change. The other team goes, "Finally, thank you. We're going to see somebody else." This, yeah, the whole Kevin Cash pulling. Uh, uh, gosh, what's his name from the uh, the Rays? Oh yeah, in the in the World Series. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a ridiculous move. And all of a sudden now, you know, anyways. yeah. There's stories. There's a story about that when that happened. Dave Roberts and uh, Justin Turner kind of looked at each other like we got him. Yep. But yep. anyway, so yeah, Tr- Tikhanov would later call that the biggest coaching mistake of his career. Yep. But here's something. So this is an incredible thing, right? So I'm going to blow your mind, Seth. Okay. There's something that makes what Team USA did even more incredible. They pulled this off without the guy that, if he would have tried out, would have easily been the best American amateur player available. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. You wouldn't. You think you want the best on the team, right? Right. So dig this. So there is a scene, the opening, the very opening scene of Miracle, 
after the credits uh, that takes place around the summer of 1979. A couple of players are looking at the tryout rosters, and one of them starts asking why Joey Mullen isn't on this list. The other guy says he's not trying out because he's looking to sign an NHL contract. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a, a throwaway line. Sure, sure. But Joey Mullen was definitely not a throwaway. Yeah, So. Yeah. A little bit about him. So he dominated Boston College, putting up 32 goals and 56 points in just 25 games a Holy senior year. Holy moly, those are so crazy like, numbers. That's over two points a game. Yeah. That's Gretzky numbers. Yeah. So he wasn't drafted, partially because he was short. He was only 5'9". Okay. But him being American didn't help either, because back in the late 70s, star players just did not come out of the U.S. like they do now. Right, right. They were just completely overlooked. So Mullen... Instead of trying out for the Olympics, he does end up signing a free agent contract with the uh, St. Louis Blues in August 1979, right around the time when he, as an amateur, could have been trying out for the team. Okay. He goes on to be the first American-born player to top 500 goals and 1,000 points in the NHL, Wow! wins three Stanley Cups, one with Calgary, two with Pittsburgh, and is elected into the Hockey Hall of Fame in his first year of eligibility. Bonkers. So, yeah, he was pretty good. Yeah, right, you think? Now, there's no guarantee he would have made the squad. Well, but, yeah, yeah, true. But it's hard to imagine that he wouldn't have. An undersized guy doing what he did doesn't exactly build a Hall of Fame career by not working his butt off. Right, right. He would have absolutely given his heart and soul trying out. As it is, Mullen not being on Team USA, a team that would have zero future Hall of Famers. That's wild as well. Yeah. So that makes the win even more mind-blowing. Yeah, I mean, I, to, just to think about the other players in that tournament who end up going to play on the NHL and being uh, in the Hall of Fame, for, for them not to have very many. I know you're going to talk about that in, in yeah. a little bit. So, I mean, it's just an incredible thing to realize. Is like, yeah, they could have had Joey Mullen. and Sorry, I just the, sneezed there. Sorry. <laughs> I, I hit the mute yeah. button before we did. Sorry, everybody. Uh, yeah, But, you know, so they didn't have him, and that just makes it even better. More incredible. So I do want to focus on a couple other teams that played in the tournament. Okay. Because we all know about, you know, the U.S. and all that stuff. But it's pretty common knowledge that the U.S. But I do want to talk one more, a couple uh, thing about the, the Team USA. Okay. Uh, so it's pretty common knowledge by now that the U.S. did not win gold against the Soviets. They had to beat right. Finland in the next right. game. Right, right. And I say that because that's pretty much mentioned every retrospective piece about the game these days that you see. Now, there's one thing that doesn't get mentioned much, and the one thing that uh, never gets mentioned, uh, the first thing that doesn't really get mentioned all that much. So the U.S. was trailing Finland 2-1 after the two periods. So U.S. coach Herb Brooks, during the second intermission, walks in the locker room and looks at his players and tells them, if you lose this game, you'll take it to your effing graves. You're effing graves. He obviously used a different word than effing. Right, right. We're a clean podcast. Yeah. The speech obviously worked because they came back and won the game 4-2. to two. Right, right. Now, the other thing that never gets mentioned about this game is the Finns had a young winger on their team by the name of Yari Curry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so if that rings a, if that rings a bell, that means you watched uh, hockey in the 80s because he ended up being Wayne Gretzky's linemate for all those high-flying Edmonton Oilers teams in the 80s, and he is another uh, first ballot Hall of Famer. I had no idea that Yari Curry was in those games. Neither did I. Uh, and it's amazing because this guy was, you know, just the fastest guy in the NHL during the 80s, and he was just breathtaking to watch. Well, 
Yeah, and and his long career with Gretzky, you know, was was just fascinating. Well, yeah. Rich, I I think about this and I go, well, why? How come we don't hear about Canada? I mean, Canada's Canada's a hockey how, powerhouse, yep. but we don't hear about them in this tournament. Why? So the reason that is is there's twofolds. I mean, the short the the the, uh, two, the short answer is that they stunk because their young talent was either in the NHL or getting ready for the NHL. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. But the longer answer is a little more complicated. Uh, 1980 was the first time Canada set a team to the Olympics since 1968. Oh. They had skipped the Olympics in 72 and 76 due to a dispute with the International Ice Hockey Federation over the use of pro athletes at the World Championships. Okay. All right. So, yeah, you could pretty much say, yeah, they looked at the Soviets and said, hey, we don't like what they're doing, essentially. But, of course, be, Canada being Canada, they still managed to have one player on the roster that eventually made it to the Hall of, of Fame. Of course. Glenn Anderson, okay. who also played on those great Oiler teams with Gretzky and Curry and Got Martin it. Messier and Paul yep. Coffey and all that. Yep. So, Sweden um, earned the bronze in the tournament. And uh, Sweden's worth noting because uh, their goalie was a guy named Pelle Lindbergh. Now, Pelle Lindbergh had made history in the NHL previously in the previous offseason because... Uh, he was the first European goalie drafted by the league. Okay. Phil- the Philadelphia Flyers drafted him in the second round. He became the league's first European star goaltender. Okay. All and, right. you know, he wound up winning the Vezina and, you know, went to the, uh, led the Flyers to the Stanley Cup uh, final in 1985. Unfortunately, uh, a month after the those eighty five finals, he died in a single person car accident. Oh, terrible! So terrible. yeah, so that was that was sad. You know, Rich. One of the things that kind of blew my mind as I went back and did some research um, is that in the eighty Olympics, the the Soviets win the silver medal. Right. Right. I just assumed that they won the bronze medal because if. The Americans beat the Soviets. They go to the quote-unquote gold medal game. Yep. And then the the winner of the gold medal game gets the gold and the loser gets the silver. But that's not how it worked no. uh, in, in the 1980 tournament. It was it was a um, basically a four-team bracket. Uh, it wasn't a four-team bracket. It was more of a points thing. So he, here's here's what I, I found out. It wasn't a true gold medal game that next game and in fact they play finland who doesn't even medal in in this whole yep. thing um and this is the quote that i found the the olympic uh, medal round was based on points and and here's the kicker rich it's points from previous games against teams in your own group carry over to the medal round excluding teams who failed to make the medal round i was told there would be no math <laughs> i know isn't it crazy yeah <laughs> so because sweden and the u.s played to a 2-2 tie in the in the opening brackets and the soviets beat finland in the opening rounds those points carried over to the medal round so the soviets went into the medal round with more points because they had a win where sweden and the u.s uh, ended up having a tie and and so when you do all the points, the Soviets get the silver, you know, and Sweden wins the bronze based on points, not on the outcomes of the game. That's absolutely crazy. And that is about the worst uh, tournament setup ever. Right. Because you're not pitting against merit. You're pitting against, you know, something that just really on the surface just seems superfluous. Right. Yeah. It's, it's kind of crazy. Well, Rich, I hate to tell you. But guess what? I'm going to hit this button right here. You know what this means? 
That means cool uh, keyboard music. Well, that's true. It's time for a break. When we come back, we're going to get into uh, the amazing story and intrigue coming out of the 1980 Olympic tournament. Um, Gosh, a lot of this could be made into a movie. Oh, Um, yeah. It's it's like a James Bond, spy movies. Uh, There's all sorts of uh, clandestine uh, uh, meetings and and, uh, notes being written on napkins and all sorts of things that are going to be happening. Uh, And, yes, we're still talking about sports. Anyways, we'll be back in a second. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Rich and I may be new at podcasting, but our podcast partner is not. We use Anchor.fm to host and distribute the Athletic Obscura podcast. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way we have found to make and distribute a podcast. Let me explain. First of all, it's totally free, which is a huge selling point for us. Second, there are a ton of creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. No additional software needed and no complex programs to learn. Once you've recorded your podcast, Anchor will distribute it for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. One of the coolest things is that you can actually make money from your podcast right away. No need to wait to grow your audience as there are no minimum listener requirements to be met, which helps you when you're just starting out. Anchor has everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. And we're back. Uh, We're talking about a few of the more unknown stories coming out of the 1980 Olympic Hockey Tournament. Rich, we got so much to get going. Just just head on. Keep going. All right. Thank you. Uh, just, yeah, stripe in. This is uh, possibly the most, this is the most fascinating story about the hockey tournament outside the USA winning gold. Okay. It's involving Team Czechoslovakia. Now, you mentioned them earlier in the 1977, so they didn't medal in the Olympics. However, they were led by three brothers, Peter Anton and Marion Sassny. Um, the trio played well in the tournament, especially Peter, who dominated. But it wasn't what they did in the tournament that makes the Sassny story so compelling. Uh, you could argue that the Stasi's uh, journey from a human perspective was the bigger miracle. Yeah, this is definitely a beyond the miracle moment. Here. Yeah, I mean, it transcends the sport. Uh, it really does. Um, so the Stasi, let's set up some context here. So the Stasi saga begins in 1976. Marion and Peter had already made an international splash as members of the Czech- Czechoslovakian team that year at both the World Championships and at the Canada Cup. The Canada Cup was a best-on-best series featuring countries from around the world. This was not 
by the way, in any conjunction with the Soviet club teams coming right. over and playing the completely NHL. different, yeah, completely different. And that's a whole other thing to look at. So Anton uh, joined them in 1977 because he essentially turned 18, and so the, tri- uh, the trio wound up playing on the same line together. Uh, so you have three brothers. So you know you've seen the Sedin twins, you right? Know, and they right. how they acted on the S. So you got three. They weren't twins, but they were three brothers that had grown up together. So you had that, you know. Um, you know, that unique familial instinct going on with the three brothers. So their skill caught the eyes of several NHL teams. Of course, as, as it should. There's one problem. Czechoslovakia was behind the Iron Curtain, right. which meant its citizens were stuck there and could not and weren't allowed to move outside the Soviet bloc. Uh, Czechoslovakia also knew what they had in Stasnys, so they treated them like royalty, giving them luxuries that ordinary citizens weren't allowed to have. This included the ability to travel abroad, as usually, as long as it was hockey-related. Okay. The young trio was also spoiled by rock star treatment, and they appeared to be comfortable with staying put. Well, that means that's a pretty good political move. I mean, if you know you have a political, uh, if sports can um, help and benefit your politics, yeah. if you know what you got, you want to make for sure that you keep them. You want to uh, invest in that asset. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, some might not say investing. Some might say that they're they're being exploited. You know, oh but, yeah, but that's enough. Totally, that, that that's perspective. Oh, it's totally exploitation. Yeah, but um, yeah, uh, but nevertheless, the NHL kept kept an eye on them, and including one team in particular, the Quebec Nordiques. Now, folks, let me just jump in for just a second. You might go Quebec Nordiques. Quebec doesn't have a team. They used to, and then they end up moving, and they became the Colorado Avalanche. Yes, and we'll, we'll, I know you'll get into that in a second. But yeah, sorry. So the Nordiques and and. In 76, 77, they weren't even part of the NHL well, yet. Right, they yeah, were yeah. part of the World Hockey Association. Right. They were Good one point. of the four teams that got absorbed into the NHL in 1979. So the team president and CEO, Marcel Abu, and I, I'm, Abu, I'm sure I screwed the name up, um, wanted the brothers badly. Uh, they, the team drafted Anton in the 1979 draft once the Nordiques were absorbed by the NHL yep, after the yep, merger. Okay. Um, but they had bigger plans than just drafting. The team had come up with a plan to help the Stasny brothers defect at Lake Placid when they were representing Czechoslovakia at the Olympics. All right, so a little bit of uh, of, of intrigue here. Yeah, right. absolutely. Right. A big bunch of intrigue. But the plan never materialized. The Czechs uh, probably sensed uh, the possibility of defection, made sure security around the brothers was too tight for any kind of defection plan to uh, succeed. Uh, the tension caused by this possibility impacted the team, and they wound up finishing fifth in the tournament. That included being shellacked 7-3 by Team USA. Yeah, and I, and I would guess that a lot of these Soviet bloc um, teams, when they were coming to the Olympics during the Cold War, that was a, a real possibility because they are, um, they've already traveled. They're in a country that might be uh, um, uh, have political asylum granted yep. to them. Uh, so this was a, a real, a real definite possibility. And there was precedent as far as the Czechoslovakian, which will uh, Czechoslovakian uh, nation, which we'll get into in a little bit. Okay. Um, however, the Nordiques were undaunted by not being able to pull off the defection strategy at the Olympics. And they bided their time until August of 1980 when the Stasny's club team was playing in Innsbruck, Austria. Okay. By this time, the Stasny's were done with the special treatment. Uh, they they just saw through it, and they just started seeing it as exploitation like you had mentioned. Sure. 
Uh, they were also fed up with the national team, which was mired in corruption. Okay. Uh, Peter had begun to learn English in secret to better facilitate his escape. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. So that's how serious they were. Now, when they were in Austria, Peter contacted the Nordiques and told them it was time. He and Anton were ready to defect. Peter would be bringing his wife, Darina, who was eight months pregnant at the time. Well, that yeah, that seems to have things a little bit more complicated, right? Complicated and very risky because you're not supposed to fly in the third yeah, trimester of your right, pregnancy. Right, right. So the next day, Abu, with um, Director of uh, Personnel Development, G- uh, Gilles Leger. Gilles Leger, thank you, yes. Yeah, you'd think I would know better than that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Gilles Leger arrives in Innsbruck, intent on whisking Anton, Peter, and Darina to the Canadian Embassy in Vienna to apply for political asylum. The two end up rough at a hotel roughly two blocks from where the brothers are staying. They arrange for a bunch of secret meetings with the brothers via a mysterious intermediary known as Mr. Bond. Ooh, James Bond. Yeah, no, just Mr. Okay. But uh, during these meetings, the defection details are mapped out, and Peter, as were Peter and Anton's um, contracts. All right, so this is kind of spy novel Spy novel, espionage, negotiation. Got it. You know, involving contracts and all that stuff, so... Unfortunately, you'll notice that I'm not leaving, I'm not mentioning all three of the brothers. Right. Right. Oh, yeah, right. Unfortunately, it was also decided that Marion wouldn't be coming with them. Okay. He was older. I think he was 26 at the time. Okay. 26, 27, with a wife and children. So there was genuine fear that if he and his family would have, would have way much more to lose if he got caught. Oh, yeah. And, and it was not, not just, financially or emotionally, I mean, their lives are a danger. Absolutely. And so Peter and Anton didn't tell Marion about the plan. Oh, he only found out about it, like, like I think either a couple hours before or a couple hours after it happened. They also did not tell their parents that they were defecting because they because they knew that they would get interrogated by the Czech government after they would be wound up missing. So... Not telling them actually protected them. Yeah, so they could actually tell the truth because they exactly. didn't know. I have no idea right. what's going on. Okay. Right. So the, all these actions that Peter and Anton did were to protect their family from the Czech government. Got it. So Abu and Leger um, wanted the thing, wanted things to move swiftly. One problem, the brothers still had one more game to play, and Peter and Anton understandably wanted to play one last game with Marion before leaving. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. That you wanted to play that game. I mean... At some point, I, I'm sure it was very difficult in their minds to say, I, I know we need to leave this situation, but we want to play hockey, especially with our brother one more time. Yeah. And, I mean, they ended up getting hammered 11-1 by the Soviet Union club team, CSKA. We talked about them already. we mentioned already. Yep. Uh, during the game, Darina Stancy, uh, Stancy, Peter's wife, grabbed the boys' bags and threw them in a rented car driven by another individual that served as a go-between between Abu and... Abu and the Stasny. I keep saying Abu like it's the monkey from uh, Aladdin. <laughs> uh, Peter and Anton had one last meal with their teammates, and that was it. Wow. wow. Now, the plan didn't go off without a hitch. Okay. While Peter met up with the getaway car at the designated meeting place, Anton did not. He went to Abu and Leger's hotel thinking that that was the meeting place. Oh, so he goes to the wrong place. He goes to the wrong place. 
Now, remember, they're like a couple blocks away from right. where the assassins were staying, but right. still, that makes a big difference because getaway car, and when people and, start figuring, put two, to, two together. And timing is huge. Timing here. is huge, exactly. So this left Peter no choice but to leave without him. Oh, my gosh. So they're driving away without his brother, without two of his brothers now. However, they drove by the hotel that uh, the Nordique staff was staying at, and um, they saw Anton. So... He was scooped up, and they raced toward the Alps, oh, raced through the Alps. Fascinating. Right. So it was a tense dash, but they made it to the Vienna airport with the help of the Viennese police and some government connections that Abu and Leger had established. They hopped onto a flight in Amsterdam and eventually got on a connecting flight to Montreal. Can you imagine thinking, um, I'm going with my brother, everything is great, we're really bummed about our other brother, yeah. we you know, understood, understand, and then... All said, now I'm the only one here. My brother's not here. Yeah, I wonder what that conversation in the car is. Can we just go by the hotel one time? What can we do? And they saw him. And how how much did the car slow down? That it just like barely slowed down? That they grab him and throw him in? Who knows? Can you imagine? Here's another thought too, because you know they're away from the rest of the team. I had to think that Peter at this point might think. Oh no! They got to Anton, and they're oh, actually yeah. attack, uh, interrogating, interrogating him now. Yeah. yeah. So the Czech government. Having missed out on the opportunity to capture Peter and Anton, unfortunately took their frustrations out on Marion. Yeah. Attempts to properly emigrate were denied. Okay. His playing days in Czechoslovakia were over. Authorities followed him, and he had to report to the police on a weekly basis. Marion's office job as a practicing lawyer was also taken away. Wow. So the only reason that his family wasn't completely ruined was due to the money that Peter and Anton, his brothers, sent him from their contract, which was smuggled into the country. So basically, he loses everything. He loses everything, but the brothers keep him afloat. Wow. Wow. So so if they wouldn't have got... Oh, crazy. They would have right. been completely ruined. Right. So Marion still wants to defect. Okay. So he comes up with his own strategy to lull the Czechoslovakian government into a false sense of security. He spends a year renovating his home. Which means I'm going to stay. Yep, right? absolutely. Okay. Putting you know all this stuff to make his home look nicer. And when he traveled throughout the Soviet bloc, something that was still allowed by mo- for most Czechoslovakian citizens, he came home without raising any suspicion. Okay. Well, in 1981, so this is a, a year after his brothers have already split to uh, Canada. Okay. Uh, while in Hungary, Marion and his family make their move. They slipped into Austria. Again, Austria is a big uh, player in this. Right, right. Uh, so they slip in Austria via transit, and Marion calls Abu. And once again, Abu uses his connections to get Marion and his family on a plane. The three brothers reunite shortly thereafter. Wow, wow. What a, what an awesome story. So, yeah, I mean, and there's and this is just like the Notes version of this. There's all kinds of other things. Yeah, this could be a movie for sure. And there actually is a documentary. Okay. Called Stastny. Okay. And uh, the only copy I, I was able to find was in French language with no subtitles. So I don't know French well enough to be I, able to exactly. go through that. So, so the three brothers played uh, for the Nordiques and occasionally on the same line. Mary Anton had decent, if not unremarkable, careers. Sure. Peter, on the other hand, ended up having a remarkable career. He ends up being the second highest scoring a player in the NHL during the 80s, trailing only Wayne Gretzky. That's amazing. Yeah. He's also the only player, he goes on to be the only player to have represented three countries in international competition. competition. Czechoslovakia, yep. Canada, yeah, okay. 
And then Slovakia, when that latter country was formed after Czechoslovakia separated into two different countries in 1993. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So today, the Stasi legacy is still continued in the league. So Peter's son, Paul Stasny, plays for the Vegas Golden Knights. Okay, all right. And since Paul was born in St. Louis, therefore he is now a member of Team USA in international competition. Oh, that is fascinating. Right? So so this whole uh, Czech or Czechoslovakian, the guys that were Slovaks because they ended up playing in Slovakia, mm-hmm. going to Canada but working and living in the United States, have a son who's now a U.S. citizen who plays for Team USA. Yeah. Wow. And plays in Vegas. Yeah. So there you go. You know, from communist uh, you know, Czechoslovakia, and now the son is in, you know, capitalist Vegas and, you know, just right. about as American as you can get, right? Right, right, right. So um, now the Stasis weren't the first Czechoslovakian player to def- to defect. And okay. I teased this a little bit earlier, but Vaclav Nedomansky became the first player to defect from the Eastern Bloc period in 1974 when he defected from Czechoslovakia and Canada, and he wound up playing in both the WHA and the NHL. And they were, and the Stasis were far from the last players to from Czechoslovakia to defect in the eighties. I think there was like a dozen. Okay. Um, and the mo- arguably the most famous of these came uh, after the came after the brothers were Peter Klima. Sure, sure. He joined the the great Edmonton Oilers teams back in nineteen eighty five and marked the occasion by wearing number eighty five. I didn't know that's why he wore eighty five. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, just like you had uh, Yarmer Yager and uh, Ziggy Palfi wearing sixty eight because of the Prague Spring. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so yeah, that's that was a, just a random vanity number. That was him saying, "Hey, I'm over here now." Right. All right. Um, well, let's get back to the to the eighties uh, to nineteen eighty game a little bit. Yeah. And let's talk about the Soviets, okay? Because you know everybody talks about the U.S., but the Soviets. Let's just say they didn't take the loss too kindly. Uh, fingers was, were pointed, blame was thrown about. At one point, Soviet defenseman Valery Vasilyev grabs Tikhonov by the throat and threatens to kill him before Soviet officials stepped in and separated the two. Wow! So serious stuff. Wow! That, Sov- and that didn't really happen. No, not yeah. at all. Um, the Soviets would go home after the Olympics and face a stunned nation that still couldn't quite comprehend what happened. Players would spend the next several years constantly feeling questions about why they lost. Right, right. I mean, they'd bounce back and win gold in 84 and 88, but things would be a little bit different. And we'll pick up their story a little bit more in the, in, um, in a moment. Let, let, let me let me jump in for just a second. Go Richard. for it. One of the things, uh, I, I, I was watching a documentary. I was going to mention it later, but I'll, me- I'll mention it here. It's a ESPN 30 for 30 called Of Miracles and Men. Yes. And it's just fascinating. And one of the things that... We are all very familiar with the 1980s uh, Miracle on Ice game called by Al Michaels, you know, very, very, um, you know, uh, filled with emotion, you know, uh, counting down the seconds, you know, do you believe in miracles, all that kind of stuff. But this 30 for 30 has the the Soviet play-by-play of those same things. And it is stoic. It is very... um, uh, non-emotional and it's basically well uh our our team has lost in this game and this ends our transmission and that's it yeah it's very strange well i just saw a clip on youtube yesterday about um uh the u.s that nightly newscast throwing it to uh their russian correspondent and they had actually had a film of people like at a department store watching the game, and the looks on their faces were just 
Yeah, I couldn't believe yeah. it. And it also happened like on the anniversary of the Soviet Union celebrating like their military. Well, and and remember, this also comes on on the heels of uh, the the Soviets playing the Americans in a tune-up game before, and, and they just destroying them to ten just, to three. Just, yeah. yeah, they just, they just walloped them, and so there there was a lot of uh, of uh, of overconfidence. In fact, a lot of the Soviet players said they were very very overconfident going into that game, and that was one of the things that really led to to that. Yeah, not not to mention that that the U.S. players seemed to have kicked it up a notch um, and really started to gel as a team. But they the the Soviets thought they were just going to walk right over them. Yeah, and again, you know, we don't cover it here because again, the movie Miracle does such a great job of right. really covering that uh, 10-3 uh, beatdown yep. and some of the stuff that Herb Brooks d- did leading up, like the infamous turn the lights off and again the game against Norway and make them skate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, all that stuff. Watch the movie if you haven't seen it. Watch uh, Miracles of Men too. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so the Soviets, again, are not taking this well. Um, let's, let's talk about some of the let's Americans. let's talk about the American sure. team now. So, you know, everybody, you know, of course, you know, they talk about Mike Ruzioni because he's the game-winning goal. He yeah. became kind of the de facto face. He was the team captain. Never plays uh, hockey at that level ever again. Yeah, crazy. Other players, though, like there were no breakout superstars. Right. But that doesn't mean they didn't do anything cool. So Ken Morrow had, I think, the coolest story of them all. So Ken Morrow joins the New York Islanders after the Olympics and proceeds to go on that run with the Islanders where they win 19 straight playoff uh, rounds, and four consecutive Stanley Cups. The crazy. So crazy. he was the first player ever to win an Olympic gold medal and a Stanley Cup in the same year. That's right up our alley. That's what this podcast is all about. Absolutely. Yep. And, you know, he was pretty dang good, too. I mean, you know, other guys had lost all careers. Neil Broughton, who played well over 1,000 games and won a Stanley Cup. Um, you know, he was a great, uh, really highly underrated player that flew under the radar uh, in the 80s, Mike Ramsey's career as a defenseman spanned 17 years, and he was just uh, just a fixture, just a good, solid defensive defenseman. Dave Christian was also a constant, uh, consistent player with the Bruins uh, and such. As the years progressed, however, the players on Team USA and Team CCCP remain intertwined. Yeah, yeah. This coincided with the NHL starting to entertain the possibility of bringing the Soviets on board. Now, this led to some bold maneuvers. Now, prior to this, uh, you know, some uh, teams would draft Soviet players mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in the lower, lower rounds. Um, in 1983, though, the Montreal Canadiens went for it. They actually drafted Vladislav Tretiak in the third round. You know, you can get a pretty good player in the third round. Yeah. Well, and you can get, you know, Tretiak, right? Who again, you know, one of the best goaltenders ever. Yeah, but you'd have no no idea if he's actually going to be able to to play for you, right? So. And unfortunately for the Habs, he stayed put in the USSR. Well, and yeah, he he basically they would be okay because they get a guy named Patrick Waugh a couple years later. Yeah, so they, they're they fine. would they would be yeah. okay. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> who who ends up end going to Colorado and winning a cup, and, and yeah. that's, that's a whole other story too. Um, Tretiak really basically retires from hockey when he's 32. Yeah. You know, there, there's not, you know, he probably could have played for a long time. He, he was, he was in, in good shape. He was a good athlete, but he said he lost the fun of playing hockey. Yeah. You know, I think, I think Tikhanov really beat that out of him. If it wasn't physically, it was mentally. 
Oh, yeah, and we'll get to some of that in a little bit, too, uh, with uh, Tikhanov beating down. Really good choice of words, Seth. (laughs) Uh, So that doesn't mean he didn't set foot on the North American soil, though. Tretiak you're talking about, right? Tretiak, yeah, or the Soviets in general, because those midseason matchups in the 70s between the Soviet club teams and the NHL teams kept happening off and on all the way up until 1991. Man, I don't think I knew that it went that long. Yeah, I mean, I remember watching when the Kings did that back in the 80s, and they were talking about the, the Russians coming to town and remembering how deeply weird that felt. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but the only difference was in 1983 when the Soviets sent this national team over. So instead of club teams. So all told, there were 18 series between the Soviets and the NHL uh, during this era. And the Soviets won 14 of the 18 series with two ties. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So wow. they just, just, you know, beat the NHL. So even though the uh, Tretiak, even though Tretiak never played in the NHL, the NHL or played in the U.S. or Canada, I guess that would be the NHL. <laughs> yeah, that's a bad typo. But the NHL became increasingly comfortable with trying to pry talent from the Soviets. In fact, the year before the Habs had drafted Tretiak, a guy by the name of Viktor Nechiev suited up for the Los Angeles Kings. I had never heard of this I before. Don't, I don't have any memory of this guy playing for the Kings. I watched the Kings when I was a kid during this time. But he became the first Soviet player to play in the NHL. He was allowed to play because he was married to an American citizen that he had met in Switzerland while playing for the Red Army and was granted, to join, granted permission to join his wife in the States. He wasn't good enough to be on that miracle team that okay. lost to the you know the, the team that lost to the miracle on ice team, and he only lasted three games in the NHL. Well, that's probably why you don't remember him, right? But he was good enough to be the first Soviet to score a goal in the NHL. Oh, okay, yeah. So on paper, it would have seemed that the Soviets would have been ready to go anywhere in the world after losing to the American kids. Sure, and these thoughts would have been justified. Tikhanov, already known for holding military-like practice sessions, right. Amped the intensity up even further. There have been stories, and I, I think that it's been corroborated, but I couldn't find a confirmed quote uh, about Soviet players training so hard that they would urinate blood. Wow. You know, and he got into the habit of cutting players off for the national team if they thought that they would they may defect during international play. Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. And we'll get to that in a little bit yep. later. Uh-huh. Uh, he also held training camps that went 11 months, keeping players away from their families. This included... Include, included the 91 player, Andrei Komatov, permission to see his dying father. Yeah, in, in fact, uh, Tikhanov uh, um, required his players to stay in army barracks yeah. during these times for 11 months. He was, Tikhanov was very much a military tactician. Uh, he was a fighter as opposed to uh, Tarasov being a lover. Well, yeah, Speaking let's, of Tarasov. Yeah, yeah, let's talk about that just a little yeah. bit. Um, Anatoly Tarasov, the father of, of Soviet hockey, uh, was a Soviet romantic. You know, he was very much a student of the revolution. Oftentimes, revolutions uh, begin with very, you know, positive and noble things. Uh, eventually, you know, the, the Soviet government turned uh, very, very different from that. Uh, he forged strong bonds with his players, like we said before. Everybody loved him, but he made them work really hard. But they did so because of a great relationship. Tikhanov, on the other hand, was what one might call a, a Soviet cynic. Yeah. Uh, he was, uh, he believed in complete obedience to the system, obligation to the program and to the party. Uh, he ruled not out of love, but kind of out of fear. Yep. And, and where, where uh, Tarasov 
was able to coach out of great love and his players respected him. Um, uh, Tikhanov was completely different and it was just fear. Yeah. They, they say that Tarasov was a poet of hockey and Tikhanov was an accountant of hockey. And that really makes sense when you think of him pulling Tretiak in that game just because that was an accountant move. Like that was an error and you, you know, you embarrassed the party by, you know, making up that last second goal. So you're out of the game. Right, right, right. Um, now let's fast forward to 1989. Okay. So by this time, a healthy chunk of that Soviet team from 1980 had retired, and sadly, uh, the Soviet star player Valery Karlamov had died in a car accident in 1981. Yeah, let me let me talk just a little bit about uh, that Karlamov story yeah. because it's really heart wrenching. Uh, summer of '81, Soviets are leaving to play in Winnipeg. All right, yep. again, one of these other series that they're playing in. The team gets on the bus in Moscow. The, their bags are packed. They're ready to go. Uh, Tikhanov gets on the bus. He calls Karlamov off. They go off to the to the side of the road. They have a little brief meeting on the sidewalk. Calls the bus driver out. Opens up the bottom of the bus. Karlamov grabs his bag, uh, and um, Tikhanov gets back on the bus. And the team goes to the airport without him. Um, Basically, they said that he stood there holding his bag on the side of the road, gave a little wave to his teammates, and that was the last time that they would see their friend and their teammate again. Mm. Just a just gut wrenching. When yeah. they land, when they land in Canada, uh, they go to sleep. They wake up the next morning uh, in the hotel, and they see the TVs in the hotel are, are showing highlights of Karlamov. And uh, because of the language barrier, they really they don't understand what's going on. Right. They said, "Why are we seeing you know all of this of of our uh, of our player?" Uh, and um, soon, through a couple of interpreters, they find out the, uh, the news that their friend and his wife were killed in a car accident. Yeah, uh, and it's just it's just heart-wrenching now slava fatisov we'll talk more about him in a little bit yes we will uh, fatisov uh, uh played uh in the, on the 1980 national team um he argues that the team needs to go back to moscow for the funeral yeah that it is it, what we need to do for our friend uh is we need to to mourn we need to come around the family we need to go uh, tikhanov says no you can't go this is tikhanov yeah. the accountant yep. uh, going again um and this was really basically the first time that a player openly challenged a coach. Right. And the, challenge is different than what we talked about with Vasilya of like putting his hand on Tikhanov's yeah. throat. That's just an emotional reaction. This is an actual open th uh challenge right, to authority right. now now the the soviets beat canada eight to one uh, in the final and they uh, immediately board a plane they they land in moscow fatisov some of his teammates go right to the cemetery um and and uh in that 30 for 30 um of miracles and men they they uh, show uh, karlamov's son uh, sasha yeah and uh you know, he was really young when his dad and his mother and father were killed. Yeah. But what happened is, is Fatisov and basically all these players fill in as father for Karla, for, for Slava or for, for Sasha. Karlov. For Sasha, yeah. And um, that is the heartwarming part of that story that they loved. Um, they loved their teammates so much who left one son without any parents. And these men basically then raise Sasha uh, it's just an amazing story. And it's a fascinating contrast between the players and the coach. Without because a doubt. the players, I mean, that is a product of Tarazov. Yep. Uh, you know, and, you know, that's just, that makes it even more uh, heartbreaking just to see that, you know, 
they kind of had to like circumvent the the coach to actually show human emotion. And this is kind of, uh, th- this is the beginning of, of that uh, real desire for a lot of these players to say, I need to get out. Yep. All right. And so, and it's funny because there were still a few players that were still active from that uh, 1980 team. All they needed was a catalyst to break that ice, like you were saying. Yeah, to get out. And, uh, you know, the guy that played for the Kings you know, wasn't that catalyst because that was a special circumstance. The catalyst, though, came in the form of a 19-year-old named Alexander McGilney. Yep, heard of him. And if you, yeah, if you've watched uh, hockey in the 90s, you know the name already. He defected into the U.S. just after the World Championships in Stockholm, Sweden, wrapped up. Now, it was a total cloak and dagger affair that partially, ha- and it's another cloak and dagger for the, we could do another podcast about defections. Right. Uh, but. This one was interesting because it partially happened because the Soviets were the Soviets allowed the team to have a day off and go shop at a Stockholm mall. Oh man! Seriously, <laughs> and that McGillan's defection just opened the floodgates. Now, one of the biggest names that came to the game, probably the biggest name, uh, was a Slava Fetisov, who we've mentioned already, and really it was a long time coming. So, a little bit of background about Fetisov: uh, he was a 22 year old defenseman on that team that lost to the Miracle uh, team. And he was regarded as one of the best blue liners in the world. It was known that he was wanted by the NHL. Yep. The Canadians, who, again, okay, they drafted uh, Tretschiak in 83, but back then they drafted uh, Fetisov in the 12th round in 1978. And then the Devils drafted him again in the 8th round in 1983, something that was legal because he didn't sign with uh, Montreal the first time sure. around. But, of course, it was impossible to leave, for him to leave without defecting, which he didn't do. Well, yeah, and that's one of the fascinating things uh, about Fatisov is that he was offered and there was, was options for him to defect, but he never did. He wanted to do it right. To talk about Fatisov, we really need to talk just really briefly about Devil's GM Lou Lamarillo. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, this could be a whole other uh, story um, uh, in and of itself. But Lou Lamarillo, uh, after he drafts um, Fatisov, um, makes it his mission to get him out of Russia. Yeah. And he tries over and over again. He's made calls. Uh, he's visited there. Uh, and we really don't have time to, to, to tell the whole story. But it really plays out like a spy movie. There's clandestine uh, meetings in bugged hotel rooms, communication happening with hand gestures and, and words written on napkins, um, meetings with the Soviet minister of defense, uh, who's basically screaming at Fatisov. Fatisov keeps calm and cool. And he wrote out a, 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 on a piece of paper uh, a demand demand for his release from the army to be signed by the minister of defense and and uh he, who denies it it's just fascinating stuff again that that uh that um documentary of miracles of men espn 30 for 30 kind of goes through all of that kind of stuff yeah and there's also another layer to the whole fatisov story so um you know one of the biggest change the times were changing in the soviet union and one of the biggest changes was the emergence of glasnost or open right. speech in the mid 80s we talked about that in the last episode yep and fatisov took full advantage of this publicly feuding with tikhanov and starting to start stating publicly about his desire to play in the nhl even though he didn't defect he's like i want to go over there and play in this league uh, the Soviet Union didn't take too kindly to this. He received a one-year suspension from the Central Red Army team, and he was tracked by the government, who at one point also threatened to send him to Siberia. Wow, wow. And that wow. was like the ultimate Soviet power move. If you look at any Cold War history, any Soviet that would uh, 
be viewed as a uh, dissident to uh, the government policy would be sent there, the most famous one being Andrei Sakharov back in the mid-'70s. Uh, so there was that was a noted uh, threat. So this is just a Cliff Notes version, like Seth said, of a Fatisov sale. Uh, the documentary, you know, you mentioned the uh, Miracles of Men. I'll give you another documentary. Uh, the documentary uh, Red Army, uh, which came out uh, like, five, like five, six years ago, uh, takes a real deep dive into this, and it's well worth a watch. Yeah, uh, agreed. Yeah, those are both two great uh, things. Well worth your time. Yeah, now, uh, Fatisov did come to the NHL eventually. He wound up there in the 1989-90 season, along with his old Soviet blue line partner from that faithful 1980 team, Alexei Kasatonov. All told, six players from that team. So, Fatisov, Kasatonov, Helmut Balderas, Vladimir Krutov, Sergei uh, Sergei Starikov and Sergei Makarov all came over. Now Sergei Makarov is either Makarov or Makarov. I've heard both. Um, he made a literal game-changing impact when he suited up for the Calgary Flames. So his rookie year, he puts up 24 goals, 86 points, and wins the Calder Trophy as the league's rookie of the year. However, he was 31. Yeah, thirty-one-year-old, thirty-one-year-old rookie. So the NHL starts thinking, uh, "Let's see, this is weird." So the league promptly puts a uh, age cap on the award. So now a player is only eligible for the Calder, the Rookie of the Year award, if they're twenty-six or younger on September fifteenth of their rookie season. So Makarov also had a couple of interesting uh, teammates when he was on the Flame. One of which was Joey Mullen. Wow. You know, that guy that we mentioned earlier yeah. that wanted to pursue a free agent contract instead of trying out for Team USA. The other was Gary Suter, whose brother Bob Suter was on the Miracle on Ice team. Okay. And as a footnote, Bob is the father of Ryan Suter, who currently plays for the Minnesota Wild. Fascinating. He also ended up being teammates with another Miracle alum, Neil Broughton, in Dallas during the 1996-1970 uh 1996-97 season before retiring. So these players end up crossing paths crossing a paths lot. Crossing paths a lot. Yep. Uh, but the ultimate is Fatisov, Kasatonov, and Starikov all end up on the same team, the New Jersey Devils. And they, too, had an interesting teammate in 1989-90. Mark Johnson, who scored the famous yeah. last-second goal in the Miracle on Ice game. One can't help but wonder what those conversations would have been like. Right, exactly. You know, and it's funny because I wanted to see if either of those three, because they're all defensemen, if any of those three were on the ice when Johnson scored. Okay. They were not. Okay. So that would have made a, it even weirder. But it was still deeply weird that the guy that essentially forced Tikhanov to pull, uh, compelled Tikhanov to uh, pull Trechiak for the game, they were all teammates. Mm, mm. And as an added bonus, you know who else was on that doubles team? Who? Peter Stastny. No way. Yeah. So that was all kinds of fun, right? And I think at one point, I got a look. I think Neil Broughton might have wound up on the Devils when uh, okay. Fatisov was on there. That sounds about right. Yeah. But anyway, Fatisov was traded to the Red Wings in 1994-95, and he had another familiar face waiting for him. Former Miracle defenseman Mike Ramsey. 
All, all together. Hey, all, yeah. Uh, you talked about Fatisov going to the Red Wings. Can we yes. talk about the Russian Five yes, for just can. a minute, a little bit? Uh, on the Red Wing uh, teams, uh, ended up having more uh, former Soviet players than any other team. Again, there's a there's a great uh, documentary called The Russian Five. I watched it on Amazon Prime last night. That kind of tells the story. Uh, it's but re- great. But really, uh, basically, the, the 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 Russian Five are, are Sergei Fedorov. Vladimir Konstantinov, Slava Kozlov, Slava Fatisov, and Igor Lirionov. Um, they ended up they end up winning the cup together in 1997, and the um, it, it, it's when uh, the Red Wings were terrible in the 80s. Just in, in the 70s, 70s and, and the 80s, 80s. yeah, they, they were just terrible. The uh, Detroit Dead Wings, right? Yeah. Exactly. They they end up getting a new GM, and he rolls the dice yep. on these Soviet players. He starts drafting them. First one was Sergei Fedorov that he drafts um, yep. in the fourth round. He ends up drafting Vladimir Konstantinov uh, in the third round. Uh, they end up no Slava Kozlov. Uh, he sees Slava Kozlov uh, playing when he's fifteen. Yes, um, and he says, "I'm going to draft him." And it, and it's crazy. They end up bringing on Fatisov a lot later in his career. They find Igor Igor Lirionov, known as a professor, uh, yeah. uh, as well. They end up winning the cup together in 1997. Yeah. And for a while in that season, they played all five of those players on the power play. On, on they played them on the same line. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the power play too. But they they would hold the puck and hold the puck and hold the puck and hold the puck, and yep. they they just dominated they were people. known as the puck possession team and it's funny because not only that but they also built a couple of uh, decent uh uh cornerstones uh the traditional way too because they got stevie steve eiserman yep absolutely and he wound up just being like just the quintessential team captain and i think his captaincy really helped to uh really build that cohesive unit and really make yep. bring a sense of normalcy uh, longest tenured captain in nhl history i do absolutely believe. yep um, the downer about that is just days after winning uh, the cup uh, in 97, uh, Konstantinov and Fatisov, along with uh, one of the Red Wings trainers, were in a terrible car accident. They were coming home from a, a celebrity golf tournament. Yep. They knew that they were going to be out on the links, uh, you know, um, having a few beers, drinking champagne out of the, S- the Stanley Cup. So they decided to hire limo drivers. Limo driver falls asleep, runs into a tree. Uh, Konstantinov never ends up playing hockey again. And the other thing that's bad about that is the limo driver was driving on a suspended license because of a DUI the previous year. That's just Yeah, terrible. I mean, Konstantin, and, you know, yeah, he would never play again because of traumatic brain injury, and that was just, oh, that was just terrible. But the other four wound up playing and winning back and winning uh, a second cup. Well, yeah, and there's this, there's just this great, uh, this coverage of, of um, uh, um, uh, of Vladimir in the stands in the yeah. in '98, and that really kind of galvanized that team because uh, they were they were playing they were playing the 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 Flyers I think that year the so, Capitals uh, yeah they beat, they beat the Flyers in '97 and the Capitals in '98 yeah, yeah and and that really kind of uh, kind of galvanized them so they went up winning back to back cups a number of them winning uh, multiple cups and uh, I think in '98 wasn't because they did the the cup handoff and they. And I memory serves me correctly. They actually had uh, Konstantinov 
on the wheelchair on the ice. Absolutely. And Eiserman gave the cup to uh, Konstantinov. He did. He did. Yeah. And it just it will bring tears to your eyes. Now let's talk just a little bit more about Fatisov. Um, uh, Richard kind of told a little bit more, but before he left to play uh, in the NHL, he ends up being the first Soviet citizen ever given the right to leave the country and to work as a free man, and received a multiple entrance working visa. Which That's means incredible. he was able to come and go uh, as often as he wanted. Um, before he leaves to go play for the Devils, he went to go visit Anatoly Tarasov, remember mm. the, the the grandfather yeah. of Soviet hockey. Uh, and there's some powerful and emotional video in that 30 for 30 documentary of the encounter between Fatisov and Tarasov. Uh, I'll be honest, Rich, when I watched it, I, I had tears in my eyes. It's so touching and amazing. Um, and, and really what that documentary says it says that Tarasov created hockey in the Soviet Union he made hockey great but Fatisov made hockey free that's a beautiful statement I mean it really is yeah and and that's really one of the things that Fatisov says you, you want to talk about miracles that's a miracle absolutely yeah now there is one important anecdote re- regarding Fatisov and specifically Fatisov and uh, Alexei Kasatonov because again, they were uh, they spent the eighties as defensive partners for the Soviet team, and they became close friends of the process. This would change, unfortunately. Kazatonov did not support Fatisov's initial outspoken stance about wanting to play in the NHL. In fact, Kazatonov sided with the very government officials that tormented Fatisov after he became outspoken. Yeah, he basically throws him under the bus. Absolutely throws him under the bus, and Fatisov doesn't forget this. While they played as a tight defensive pair, even when they played as teammates in the new as for the New Jersey Devils, um, they never spoke to each other on off the ice. Mm. And there's stories about like they would come and they would like be ill playing that they would communicate as hockey players, but the moment they stepped off the ice, the wall would just come right between them. Now, eventually, uh, a funny anecdote about Kastonov though, he would wind up being picked up by the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim as part of the team expansion draft in 90, 1993. And I always found it amusing that this guy, the Soviet loyalist who threw his teammate under the bus for wanting to play in the NHL, ended up spending time on a team owned by Disney, which is about as big of a symbol of the U.S. and the West as they come. Right, right. So it feels almost like just desserts for, uh, you know, just stabbing his teammate in the back. Yep, yep. Which brings us back to Team USA. Okay. For a couple final thoughts. Future American teams had legitimate future stars on their roster. So the 80, if and but they were still nowhere as near as successful. They actually stunk in, in uh, 84 and 88. You look at those teams. So the 84 team, I'm going to throw out a couple names here, okay. and you'll know these names. 84 team had Chris Chelios and Pat LaFontaine. Wow, wow. Yep. The 88 team had Brian Leach and Mike Richter. Wow. Chelios, LaFontaine, and Leach are all Hall of Famers. Richter might be one, too, if the Hall wasn't so weird about including inducting goalies. That's just, just crazy. Yeah. Yep. But Leach and Richter, of course, famously helped the Rangers win the first cup in 54 years. Yeah, right. I mean, so. Which, by the way, not to make you feel old or anything, you do realize that we're now halfway, we're right at the half halfway point of that 54-year period with the Rangers. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Don't stop it. Stop Sorry. it, Rich. All right. I want to I talk a little bit more about Tikhanov, the, the Soviet yes. coach. Uh, we talked about his fear of defections since the late 80s, uh, and it was said that his fear was so great, uh, like you said, Rich, that he cut players that might defect. So 1991, he cuts Pavel Bure. He's pretty good. Uh, Valerie Zilpukin. 
uh, Evgeny Davidov and Vladimir Konstantinov. He cuts all of them because he's afraid that they're going to defect. Yeah. Right, and he actually cuts Konstantinov right before the 1991 Canada Cup. Now, they were all had been drafted by NHL teams, and he was absolutely terrified that they were going to be defect that they would uh, defect if they were allowed to go out to the West, just like Mogilmany and Sergei Fedorov. Yeah, and uh, they wanted to play Burry's in the Hall of Fame. There's a weird story about Pavel Burry's. Uh uh, draft rights that we should probably d- that we'll dig in on a future episode. There's some weird. There really is some weird drafting stuff going on with some of these uh, European players. Well, yeah, and and you know Fedorov's uh, defection happened in Portland, uh, and he mm-hmm. basically ends up going uh, to uh, uh, the, the house of one of the uh, the Red Wings uh, GMs, assistant GMs, and he's sitting there playing. Um, uh, uh, Nintendo. Yeah. And the guy ends up getting a phone call from uh, the State Department um, saying, do you know the whereabouts of uh, of Sergei Fedorov? <laughs> and he said, yes, I do. And so he says, Sergei, do you want to go back to Russia? And, he, and he's sitting there eating a, an amazing meal and playing Nintendo. And he says, nope, I don't want to go back. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay, so I, I do have one more th- note to add about taking off. Okay. Given this fear of players defecting to land of the U.S., which this anecdote that I'm going to share is uh, just beautiful. So his son, Victor, winds up playing in the NHL. <laughs> the Coyotes drafted him in the first round of the 2008 draft. He plays two seasons in the NHL for the Coyotes and the Blackhawks. Now, the fun thing is the seasons were six years apart. Oh, they weren't They weren't no. consecutive? The rest of the time was spent either, either the AHL, which was the uh, minor league for yeah, the NHL, American or the KHL, league. the Russian league. Okay. So, yeah. So, uh, one final thought about the Miracle Ice team. Finally made the NHL realize that maybe, just maybe, some decent players can come out of the U.S. It's safe to say that the explosion of American players that started to come into the league in the mid-90s, were partially inspired by this game that really get into hockey. In fact, I think uh, in that Miracles of Men, uh, they have uh, a brief uh, snippet of Jeremy Roenick saying, oh, yeah, I watched that game, and immediately I wanted to be the next Mike Ruzioni. So you can see all those things, you know. So would the NHL look like it does now if the Miracle on Ice doesn't happen? Probably not. Right. Right, right. And who knows? We may not even have the influx of Russian superstar enter the enter the NHL that we've had in the last three decades. I mean, it's rather fascinating to the, to realize that probably the most beloved na- athlete in our nation's capital right now is Russian. Yeah, I mean, we wouldn't have had the 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 Russian five in Detroit. Yeah, we, we wouldn't have Alice, Alex Ovechkin chasing after Gretzky's record yeah, right now. Absolutely, we wouldn't have Eugenie Malkin. And I need to just mention Malkin sure. story because this really th- this really hammers home just how nuts this is. So you would think that now the whole Soviet and defection stuff we're all past that. No, <laughs> so. You know, after the first wave of Soviet defectors, Russia still occasionally resorts to weird behavior about their players. Now, it's easy to forget about this, but in 2006, Penguin Star, you know, if Jenny Mal- if Genny Malkin, you know, Hart Trophy winner, just a brilliant player, um, he had a somewhat defect from his Russian club team, Metalogmanitogorsk, when he was, well, the team was in Helsinki. So I say somewhat because he didn't have to defect per se, but he did have to sneak out of the country to release himself 
from a one-year contract contract that Metalurg more or less forced him to sign to stay in Russia for an extra year. So he defected out of his contract. He defected out of his contract, but there's a whole lot of stuff that happens that sounds very similar to some of these other Cloak and Dagger stories. Unbeknownst to anyone except for his North American agents, because he had been drafted by Pittsburgh and had already secured an agent, uh, Malkin split from the team and hid in a hotel room for (laughs) a few days. This created an international manhunt across Scandinavia as the Russia, as the team officials were looking for Malkin. Um, but the man, while the manhunt was going on, Malkin snuck onto a plane and flew to Los Angeles. Fascinating. So, Fascinating. Yeah. Hey, uh, we're just about done here. We're running out of time. I, I want to give one last little note about Slava Fetisov. Uh, 1997, we talked about him winning the Stanley Cup. Uh, and uh, when he raises the cup, he's actually the second one to get the cup. Obviously, Eiserman, the captain, gets mm-hmm. it from from the commissioner. Um, Eiserman skates it, and he goes immediately um, to to Fetisov. Fetisov sort of grabs it, but before he can completely grabs it, he he finds Igor Larionov, his own his old Russian teammate, and the two of them skate the cup together. Probably the first time that two people skated the cup together yeah. right after that. Um, so 17 years after the miracle on ice, the Russians finally have a, a championship on, on American ice. Now, the Stanley Cup final is over. Uh, Fatisov goes to NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman and says he's going to take the cup to Moscow because that's what you do. You get to take it home. Yep. And Bettman says, no, you can't take it. And he says, no, I'm going to take it. And there's this whole big battle. Uh, Bettman was afraid of the quote-unquote criminals in Moscow that they were going to steal it. Well, Fatisov ends up getting his way. He takes the cup. He ends up raising it uh, in Red Square. Uh, there's some pretty cool pictures uh, on that. So in 1997, after the fall of the Soviet Union, the Stanley Cup with Russian names on it is held high in, in Red Square. Um, as Fatisov says at the end of the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, he says, you talk about a miracle. Hockey can change the world, unquote. Absolutely. Yeah. And hockey has had a huge part in literally changing the world, Rich. Right. And and we just we literally gave you just a thumbnail sketch, and I know we're going to be an hour and a half into this podcast, and what a ride. What a ride. Thanks, oh. for, thanks for the hard work uh, on researching this, Rich. Thank you. And just, again, what Seth said, um, this really is just the uh, – surface level i mean there's so much more deep depth and context to go in we could easily have done like a four or five part series on this um and so i mean as this continues i'm sure that we will continue uh to like extract a little more here and there out of this kind of uh base of a story but it's absolutely tremendous and uh, thank you for uh, your contributions on this this was this, this is was a blast. A, such fun to dig into, and oh my gosh! If you would look at uh, at the uh, at the uh, the tweet or not the tweets, the texts between Richard and I over the last uh, two weeks, it's literally been, been back and forth. Did you know this? Did you know this? Did you know this? Did you know yeah. this? And it's been it's been we knew a lot, but we learned a ton through this. My goodness, yes. A- any final thoughts before we close up? Uh, just, yeah, just watch the documentaries. Mm-hmm. So you got Mir- of Miracles of Men on ESPN. Uh, the Russian Five on Amazon Prime, yep. and then the Red Army. I don't know if it's streaming anywhere, but um, even if it's like on Redbox or something for three bucks, it's worth the three bucks. I'll try to find links for those and throw them in the ch- in the show notes. That would be awesome as yeah. well. 
All right. Well, thanks everybody for taking time to listen. If you have a topic idea for us, want to chat, uh, agree with us, disagree with us, add to the story, you can send us an email. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Please subscribe, rate, and comment on your podcast platform of choice. This helps us out a lot. Hey, Rich, can I share a couple of comments that we've actually got? On, yeah, of uh, course. On uh, They're good, right? Uh, yeah. So far, okay, we've only got uh, five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Uh, this is one that comes um, thanks, from, Mom. from at Joe's Dash Talk. Uh, great podcast, a must-listen. It's professionally done with high-quality sports content, a must-listen if you're a sports fan. Uh, from somebody whose name is Primpin, uh, if you're looking for coverage of all things weird in sports, you have to come to the right place. The team at, at Athletic Obscura do a fantastic job. Thank you so much for that. And then we got one uh, from uh, OPA Padre, who actually I know who this is, but uh, this is what they said. <laughs> I have 1,954 reasons why I enjoyed episode one of this podcast, or was it 1956 or 1966 reasons? <laughs> Uh, All right. Uh, he goes on. Uh, a boatload of sports-themed trivia and arcane anecdotes are wonderfully woven together to intrigue the inquisitive listener. The two hosts share their memories, investigative insights, and love of the wide world of sports, especially the wacky ones covered uh, over by the cobwebs of time. The hosts' enigmatic endeavors uncover obscure historical events that still impact athletics today. Great podcast to savor while walking, hiking, driving, ambling, or sitting down and shooting the breeze with friends with a plate of skipjack tuna and a full beverage in hand. Just excellent. <laughs> so uh, thank you for that. If you want to leave us a review, that would be fantastic uh, yeah, for us. That's awesome. Uh, if you have enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes, if they've given you value, uh, please uh, do leave us a review. If you want to uh, support us financially, you can go to buymeacoffee.com. Uh, forward slash athletic obscura and you can buy us a coffee but uh rich knowing us we're probably just going to blow it on craft cocktails anyways so yeah yep. oh yeah uh, yes yeah, don't tell anybody <laughs> uh oh let's do this we can get some get some music going on here uh if you want to connect with us on twitter you can do that at athletic obscura we post weird strange and unknown tidbits just about every day i'd be happy to connect with you um um there rich Yes. You know who followed us on Twitter yesterday? Who? I was going through and I got a new follower and, and I did a couple of things uh, where I was gaining some followers and I get a, a follow from a verified Twitter account. I'm like, who, who's going to be, uh, who's doing it? I went in, Irvin Santana, major what? league pitcher, Irvin Santana. Irvin Santana. Follows us on Twitter. You know, the guy who threw no hitter for the Angels in 2011. Yeah, that, that guy. That's awesome. Thank you, Irvin. Thank yeah. you. Oh my gosh. Hopefully you're listening. Yeah, this Anyways, is awesome. Uh, if Holy you crap. are if you are interested in sponsoring the show in a more substantial way, feel free to contact us via email and we'll get the ball rolling on that. Don't forget to check out anchor.fm for all your podcast needs. One last thing, I got some cross-promotional pieces that are in the works. Um, I'll be a guest on a few other podcasts coming up soon. All the more reason to follow us on Twitter, because that's where I'm going to be posting the links to those as soon as they're released. Nothing more than that. Rich, we're working on a couple of episodes, but our next one is going to be about... The Harlem Globetrotters and the first time that they lost to the Washington Generals. Yes, they actually have lost a couple of games. And there's more to the Globetrotters than... uh, goofy hijinks and uh occasional rare rare losses but there's a there's a ton in there and we are uh, actively doing some research on that it's going to be a fantastic uh, episode so i can't wait until we do that uh and 
when we do, we invite you in to another discussion of the weird, strange, and unknown in sports. Adios, everybody. Good night. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the Wanna Bet Podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric acid. Are you a fan of classic cinema or a young person who wants to discover the best films of all times? Do these legendary movies still hold up? On the Generation Film Podcast, two guys who grew up when movies dominated the culture share a great film with a panel of young movie lovers and see how it plays for today's generation. We discuss changes in storytelling styles, representation, and the making of each film, its initial reception, and how its meaning has changed over the years. Join us as we explore cinema classics across generations on Generation Film. Electric Ass. Electric Ass.